0: All right, oops, back one, there we go, we're in Matthew. What color is that on the screen up there? Yeah, I was trying to pick purple for royalty and I, you know, it's like what it looks like on my computer and these screens are just two totally different things, so. The last time we were together, uh, which was two weeks ago, and thank you Sam for filling in so well last week, I really appreciate it the fact that you are so reliable and always preach the word so well, so thank you. Um, but when I was with you the last, we were uh, at the Jordan River with Jesus in his baptism. And, and as you know, Jesus is heading out into the wilderness now to be tested. So as we look at the text today, what I want to give you is what be the, the theological or literary purpose behind what is written, Okay. Uh, and we don't want to forget that. And then I want to jump to, okay, how does this work itself out in our lives? And so the message really is going to be on the practical outworking of uh, Jesus and his temptations, right? The, Matthew's point in talking about the temptations of Jesus isn't to say, hey, here's how you overcome temptation in your life. That's, that's not his point, okay? So we understand the theological point, and then we're going to move towards what I'm going to spend most of my time on is the practical understanding. And this will be two messages and you'll thank me for that. So, the theological point is that Jesus, the true Son of God, fully obeyed the Father, validating His role as Messiah, King of the Jews. In that part of the world at that time, it was very common for a young man who would become king to prove himself, that he would have to go undergo some type of a test to prove his Worth as the future king. And, and this is somewhat of what is being seen here. There are some other theological issues, a few layers that we'll see as we move through the text. But this is the main point. When we were last with Jesus, remember he was coming up out of the Jordan River, and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven. Confirming Jesus as the Son of God. This is my Son whom I love. When Jesus obediently followed the Father's command that he be baptized, he confirmed his chosen calling as both the suffering servant who would take away the sins of the world, right? That's so important. That picture of baptism by immersion, dead. He's dying, going under the water. Sin is dying with him. And he rises from the dead. Since penalty has been paid, new life is given. So that picture is so important. And Jesus submitted himself to baptism because he came as the servant to take away the sins of the world. As the true son of God who would rule on David's throne forever as the king of the Jews. Right. So we have kind of two things going on here. Jesus as the servant and Jesus as true Israel, the true son. Jesus, or actually three, Jesus as king. Matthew is trying to present Jesus as king. That's why we have the blue, the crowns, the royalty. Now, as Jesus has been baptized, he heads into the wilderness. He has been attested by God as being in perfect harmony with the heavenly plan. He is going to be baptized. I am submitting to the plan that you have for me, Father. This baptism shows that I will die for the sins of the world. He is. He has been attested by God as being in perfect harmony with the heavenly plan, and now he has proven to be so. And fittingly, since, he, since it is heaven that has declared him to be fit, this is my son whom I love, he must show his victory, as it were, over hell. He is now to face disorder and ugliness of Satan's dominion, to show his power over evil. Goodness at its highest has commended him and evil at its lowest will be conquered by him. The combination of both, credit him as king. Those, those are John MacArthur's words. Now, this is, I'm telling you, I, I, um, I've said this before. I study, I, I do my work on the text, and then I listen to a few, few people preach. And I'm telling you, these two messages that John MacArthur has on the baptism of Jesus will just bless you if you listen to them. So incredibly good. And so that's taken from his message on the uh, Jesus wilderness uh, experience. All right, so let's look at the text and, and let's see what we can learn today. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. "'If you are the Son of God,' he said, "'throw yourself down, for it is written, "'He will command his angels concerning you, "'and they will lift you up in their hands "'so that you will not strike your foot against the stone.'" Jesus answered him, "'It is also written, "'Do not put the Lord your God to the test.'" Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. "'All this I will give to you,' he said." If you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, then we have verse 11, which isn't there. I don't know why it's not in the text. The angels come and minister to Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. The angels come and minister to Jesus. He is victorious over temptation. And so as we look at Jesus here, again, this is the other theological thing that I want you to see here, okay? I want you to understand theology, it's important, all right? And so Jesus is being paralleled um, with Israel, okay, and and Adam is the one from whom Israel um, arose, okay? And so Israel, you have the first Adam, okay, and then you have the nation of the people uh, of God's children, the Israelites, Uh, they went into Egypt with Jacob, they came out as a nation, they were called his first son, right, and as they came out, they came through the water or out of the water, and they went into the wilderness to be tested. Does that resonate? You understand that? You can see that in the biblical narrative, and they failed in the wilderness, But Jesus has come, as we know, as the second Adam, right? We saw the beginning of Matthew. He went into Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. He has been called. This this is my son whom I love. He is the true son. He is true Israel. He came out of the water in baptism, and now he's sent into the wilderness to be tested, and he came out victorious. You see the parallels there. And there's also another parallel that you made between Jesus and Moses and Matthew, but we're not going to dive into that at this point. So theologically, we see what's trying to be conveyed. Jesus, the true Son, fully obeyed the Father. He was victorious in his wilderness experience, validating his role as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. All right. So I've given you really the theological literary position we're at in the text. And now I want to jump to just a very practical understanding of temptation. I want to be where we're at every day as we struggle to deal with temptation again. This is not why Matthew wrote the text, but we can learn from this text about dealing with temptation, how temptation fits into our lives as believers, and how we can work through temptation, having confidence in God's purpose for temptation, so that we will ultimately be victorious, and that will be when Jesus returns or when we breathe our final breath. Because friends, until, you, until that happens, we're going to struggle with temptation. That's just the way it is, okay? And so this is the practical point here. Jesus overcame sin's temptation, and so can you as you submit to the word of God. Don't you want to overcome the temptation in your life, okay? I know I do, okay? And so I hope that what we learn over the next two messages will be helpful to you. So as we look at the issue of temptations and we look at the issue of trials, and I've said this often, inherent in every Trial is temptation uh, for us, okay? And we'll see how temptation and trials are used synonymously. But the question comes up is, okay, Jesus, he is the Son of God. So, I mean, like, really? Is this really hard for him? I mean, yeah, he fasted for 40 days, and he was hungry, okay? I get he had to eat, you know? And, And one time I was, a long time ago, I was preaching this text, and I said, and he didn't drink anything. He was without food and water, and somebody came and said, oh, you can't live without food. Without water for 40 days. And I thought, you're right, that's not in the text. But did you know when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, the text actually says he didn't drink water for 40 days? Go back, it's in the text. So anyway, so Jesus, okay, like really? Okay, I get he was tempted, but is it really like the things that we face? Because he's fully God. Like he he can't sin. There's this doctrine called the impeccability of the Son of God. If something is impeccable, it means it is completely without blemish. There is nothing wrong. It's impeccable. And so the doctrine of impeccability means that not only did Jesus never sin, it was impossible for him to sin. And we have to hold that, right? Because God, God is too pure to look on evil, Habakkuk tells us. Right? God can't sin. So if the Son of God is God, then it's impossible for Jesus to have ever sinned. But we have to acknowledge his human nature as well. Jesus hungered. Jesus thirsted. Jesus was sleeping. Jesus felt pain. Jesus wept. He's fully human. We cannot deny the full humanity of Jesus Christ and all that that entails as we understand the temptations of Jesus Christ. Just because you and your mind and me and my pea-sized brain, I can't rationalize God and man and the same person and how they relate to one another doesn't mean that Jesus' temptations weren't real and weren't extraordinarily difficult. But what's the difference between what Jesus faced and what we faced, right? So as you look at this diagram, I, this is, again, I say, this is how I think, okay? So Jesus was without sin. He was tested by the Father. He was impelled. He was driven in to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tested by the Father, just as Israel went into the wilderness to be tested by the Father. And when Jesus was in the wilderness, we'll see he's tempted by Satan. But there's a, as a part of that, because he's in a human body and he's in a material world, part of that temptation comes from the material world. Jesus fully obeyed the Father without sin, 100% obedience. Now, us, we have a sin nature. We're different than Jesus. Right? We have two natures. Jesus had two natures, fully God, fully man. All right, We are fully man, and we have a sin nature and a divine nature. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. We still have the sin nature, though. It's still there. No longer our master, but it is powerful. So that's what makes it different. Jesus' temptations were all external. They were all from the outside, Satan and the material world. Our temptations, Satan, the material world, and we have this sin nature that we struggle with, that we hate, that we cry out, what a wretched man that I am. And the result for us is we either yield to the temptation, like we give in to it. We sin. Sometimes there's partial obedience. You may say, well, you know, it's either complete obedience or it's disobedience. Well, you know where I'm coming from. Like sometimes we, like we, we're really trying, we do... You know, most of everything, there's one issue that we can't deal with, right? So we we get some credit, right? God gives partial credit, I believe. He wants full obedience, but he understands the struggle. And then there's full obedience. You see the difference between Jesus' temptations and our temptations? We can't deny the full humanity of Jesus Christ as we consider what he went through as he was tempted. All through his ministry. I think the two times that we look at the temptation of Jesus Christ are this example and then in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus tells his disciples, these are are those who are with me throughout all my trials and temptations. He's talking to the disciples. So throughout his ministry, there was this temptation that was going on from Satan. We can't imagine the depth of his temptation. So as we look at temptation, I'm just going to make some statements based on the text. We're going to get through basically the first two verses in this text today. And then we'll actually hit... The, the three temptations there uh, next week. And the first point is pretty obvious, but let's go through it anyway. I'm the master of the obvious. Everyone experiences temptation. Everyone experiences temptation. And we see this you know, in the text. Jesus experienced temptation. You know, we're no greater than our master. If Jesus experiences it, we're going to experience temptation. All of us, because of the world that we live in, the sin-cursed world that we live in, are going to experience temptation. Paul resonates in his letter to the church at Corinth. We looked at this a few months ago. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. It's a common in the human experience that we would face temptation. And God is faithful. We'll come back to this text next week. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, right? There's this assumption. So Jesus says, when you pray, it's expected that you're going to pray. When you are tempted, this will happen. He will also provide a way out, a way of escape, so that you can endure it. This is common to the human experience. We will all face temptations of one kind or another. All right, so next week, I'm going to make the point that all of our temptations really fall under three categories. Some of you may know what those are. That's the commonality. But we all undergo temptation. The next thing we see is that temptation often comes when we feel spiritually strong. We feel like we've got things conquered. I've, I've got a handle on life now. I've got things under control. I'm doing. I've been doing my devotions every day for at least three months. I'm praying three times a day. I've fasted once a week for the past three months. I've got things. I've, I've not missed one episode of Grace to You in that time. I've been. I am on it. I haven't missed a Sunday. I've been to both services. You feeling strong? I've been sharing the gospel with people. I haven't had an argument with your spouse kids are just lined up in perfect obedience you're feeling like you've got it all covered when we're strong is when temptation knocks on our door comes at us from the back actually so in the text we see this then Jesus at once immediately right so so he's coming out of the water so he comes out of the water you know He's thirty years. He's, he's lived thirty years of his life already. He has perfectly obeyed the will of the Father for thirty years. He comes out of the water and he hears, "Well done, good." I'm not well, good in faith from serving. This is my son whom I love. <laughs> right? He gets the Father's stamp of approval. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and at once, immediately, he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, I've thought about this. You know, I, I don't know that Jesus came with a He may have come with a duffel bag. I mean, maybe he knew when he went into the water, he was going to come out he's going to head straight out to the wilderness. We're just not told that. We do know that as soon as he came out of the water, he went out into the wilderness, he went up from the Jordan into the desert after he heard the approval of his father, right? This is a picture of, you know, when the Jordan River really kind of splits. It's one of the thirds. It splits Israel. So you have, so if I'm looking at Israel this way, Mediterranean, okay, and then you have uh, some mountains, and then you have a, a coastline, and then you have uh, mountains, and then you have the, the Jordan, and then you have deserts, okay, and it's, you go out to the desert, the Jordan heads down to the Dead Sea, it's a pretty significant drop, uh, very steep drop actually from, uh, uh, from that point down to the Dead Sea, and it's, it's horrible land, I mean, it's, there's nothing out there. Dry, desolate desert. And he goes out into the wilderness without any food. The animals are out there, right? Mark tells us the animals are out there with him. And Jesus is sent to a place of desolation. One commentator says this It's an area of yellow sand, crumbling limestone, of scattered shingle. It is an area of contorted strata where the ridge runs in all directions, warped and twisted. The hills are like deep heaps, dust, like dust heaps. The limestone is blistered and peeling. Rocks are bare and jagged. Often the ground sounds hollow. It runs right to the Dead Sea, and there it comes to a drop of 1,200 feet down. So, a place of complete desolation, a place of the wilderness. And this is right after Jesus is pronounced by God. This is my son. He's on a spiritual mountaintop, if you will. It is not uncommon in Scripture to see this happen with those that God is about to test. right? If you consider throughout biblical history, Adam and Eve, they're placed in the garden. God is walking with them in the cool of the morning. They have direct revelation from God. They have everything that they need in the garden. They're not, they're not lacking anything. There's no sickness, right? Adam and Eve have this perfect relationship. They have everything they need in the garden. And you would think in that kind of circumstance, there would be no temptations, right? They, they would never struggle, right? We could see like, okay, going out into the wilderness without food, you're fearful for your life, it's hot, it's cold, you know, I've got some, yada, yada, yada. You could see how somebody could succumb to temptation in the wilderness, but in the garden, right? And so often when we fall to temptation, what do we do? Well, God understands my circumstances, Right? I'm in such a bad situation. Now, God understands why I would make this decision, because I just can't, I can't make it. You have Noah, right? Noah comes out of the ark. right? He stood, he stood firm for God the whole time the ark was being built, all those years. They make it through this cataclysmic, this, this earth-changing flood. They lived through that. Noah's vindicated, right? I told you what was going to happen. He comes off the ark, you know, and God has has been true to his word. He's in a spiritual high. What does he do? He builds a vineyard and gets drunk, and we see the sin that comes from that. Temptation came. Abraham, he makes it to the promised land, right? God's speaking to them. He goes into the promised land. This is going to be yours. Hey, Sarah, I'm afraid we might die if if you know if you tell them you're my wife, or I might die, if you tell them you're my wife. He he lies. How about Moses? David. I mean, David, he he you know, he what does he? He he's he's basically subdued the Philistines. He subdued the Philistines. All the enemies of Israel are at bay. All the kings have gone out to war. He stands, I mean he's he's you know, he's got everything he needs. He is the king. He's. He's expanded the borders of Israel and he's in a great position. Goes out on his back porch one night to catch a cool breeze and he sees Bathsheba. Elijah. Kills 450 prophets of Baal. He stood firm for the Lord. The next scene after that, he's what? He calls fire from heaven, kills the prophets. Next scene, what? He is... Running from Jezebel, right? So we see that that when we've reached a spiritual pinnacle, then we're a danger for temptation. We're never safe as long as we live in a sin-cursed world. You will never be safe from temptation. You just let's mark this down because that's what we're longing for. And this is this is a good long. We want to be at that point where we never struggle with sin anymore. We want to be at that point where we do not have to face that temptation. That's one of the glories of being in heaven. We won't have that anymore, but in this life, you will struggle with temptation, and it will be strongest when you feel like you are most secure. So, temptation is common to all. Temptation strikes when you least expect it, when you feel like your spirit's is strong. Temptation is ordained by God for a purpose. It's ordained by God, right? Why did Jesus go into the wilderness? He was, in the words of Mark, he was driven, he was compelled. The term that, from the original angle is basically thrown into the wilderness. You're, you're going. And Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and he went into the wilderness. He was compelled by the Spirit. Temptation is ordained by God for a purpose, and though he ordains it, he does not personally tempt anyone. Right, this is where we have to start, make sure we understand terms. God doesn't tempt anyone. He'll put you in a trial, but he doesn't tempt you personally. I think if you wanted to spend time on the internet later on, you can look at non-constraining secondary causation. That's a a million dollar expression, right? Non-constraining secondary causation. James is helpful here, right? You guys are familiar with this passage. James starts out this beautiful passage that helps all of us in the midst of trials. But it's kind of freaky, isn't it? I want you to have joy in the midst of trials. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The King James is, is is you know, the, the newer versions of the Bible give us better understanding. The King James is it brings confusion, right? Because at the bottom of the screen there is the King James. My brethren count it all joy when you fall into diverse diverse temptations. All right. So in the King James temptations, 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 thankfully the NIV puts trials and temptations. I said at the beginning that inherent in every single trial that we face are temptations. But they're different. They are different. Because God does. God will send you into a trial to test your faith, but God is not the one tempting you in the midst of the trial. right? Because James continues, thankfully. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. <clears throat> now, think about the, the Lord's Prayer. There's a part that says, what? Lead us not into, so why would you pray to God to not lead you into temptation when you know that God is not the one who tempts us, okay? And I think there, uh, the best way to understand is two ways. One would be you take that word temptation and turn it into trial. God, don't lead us into a trial, you know, that would be too much for us to handle. And it's okay to pray that. It's all right to pray that. Right, if you're super spiritual, like God, send me into the fire. I want you to test my faith. I want you to put me through whatever it takes, God. You can treat me like Job, test my faith. Is that the way you pray? Oh, no, I don't. Okay, I'm less spiritual than y'all are. So, so the when we look at the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation. You know, God, you know, don't lead me into a trial that's going to be more than I can bear. Okay, or you know. As you lead me into the trial, God, keep me from the devastating effects of temptation. Knowing that they'll they'll be there in that trial. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted, what? When they're dragged away by their own evil desire, enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So so God ordains temptation, but he's not personally the one causing the temptation. This is an important distinction to make. Important distinction. Secondly, God ordains temptation for your good if you're his child. So there are certain promises in Scripture that are made to God's children. We can't make them to everybody. Sometimes we unwisely, like we're trying to encourage somebody who's not a child of God, and we start giving them Scripture, and those Scriptures only apply to children of God. You're giving them false hope. So as we look at temptations and we look at trials, God ordains them. They're part of his eternal decree. And we'll see in a minute who carries those things out. But God ordains the temptation. And he does it for your good. That's if you are a child of God. So there's a purpose in that. right? We saw that in James. Let me back up here in James 1. Because you know that what? the testing of your faith produces perseverance, right? So the issue is your faith. God wants you to have the same faith as his son, Jesus Christ, who in the wilderness clung to the will of his father, overcoming temptation victoriously. So God ordains temptation for your good, and we see this in Deuteronomy chapter eight. And really, this helps us to see the parallel, and we'll see this next week in the first temptation where Satan's like, hey, you've been 40 days, you haven't eaten, you could do, I mean, You could have made yourself a meal ex nihilo every day. What's going on? Why aren't you making yourself some bread? And so we see Jesus in the wilderness, the temptation to to grumble and complain at God's plan for him. And, and, and get you know, God, you're not doing it for me. I'm going to get it myself. That's next week's message. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Jesus quotes from this passage, and we'll see this next week. Remember the Lord... How the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these forty years forty days forty years okay to humble and what test you in order to know what was in your heart it does isn't it nice how trials and temptations really just expose what's in your heart man it just it just squeezes your heart and all that nastiness comes out to humble you and to test you to know what's in your heart whether or not you would Keep his commands. Really, that's, that's the issue for Jesus. He's being tested. You know, Jesus, you, you have identified. You are the, you identify with sinful humanity and baptism. You you are the Lord's servant. You're, the Holy Spirit has come down on you, identifying you as the servant of the Lord, prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah. Now, are you going to obey? Are you going to submit your will to the will of the Father? It's a test. What's in your heart, Jesus? Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you what? That man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's what he's going to quote. We'll see that next week. But what's the purpose of the trial that necessarily involves temptations in this sin-cursed world? It's to see our faith. Where is your faith? Where is your heart? What's in your heart? Sometimes when we're confident, we can't see the wickedness of our heart. We can't see the hatred that's dormant in our heart. We can't see the depths of the lust of the flesh that we have until we suffer in a trial. And God says, look, I, have, I, want, you, I want better for you. Friends, I want better for you, and for me to give you better, you're going to have to go through this trial. So God ordains temptations for your good because He has a purpose, He has a purpose. The next thing we see about trials and temptations is this is that the devil gladly intervenes to tempt us as he is allowed to do so. Satan's more than happy to come on in and tempt you because. He hates those creating the image of God. Satan wants to destroy the children of God. Satan would like nothing better than to see this building just decimated with us in it. So he loves when God gives him the opportunity to tempt us. Matthew 4.1, again, the last part of this text. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, what? To be tempted by... The devil, to be tempted by the devil. Or devil means slanderer, malicious talker, enemy. The other word we use is Satan, right? The adversary, the enemy of God. There's other terms for the devil in the Bible. Angel of light, Second Corinthians. The antichrist is, you know, the, the main antichrist is Satan. Beelzebub, Belial, crooked serpent, the dragon, the enemy, the father of lies, the god of this world, the great dragon, the great fiery red dragon, the liar, the man of sin, the murderer, old serpent, power of darkness, prince of the devils, prince of the power, roaring lion, ruler of this world, serpent, son of perdition, tempter, thief, and the wicked one. All these refer to the same being, the same real being, and that would be Satan, the devil. So what comes to mind? I already had a picture. I kind of, I've kind of tainted you, right? These, all these pictures come to mind when we think of what the devil. You know, what, what does he look like? And why is he carrying a trident? I, somebody find that. I, I was looking. I was like, uh, the trident is, is that thing that looks like a pitchfork? It's not really a pitchfork. It's a, it, a trident. Uh, uh, Neptune would have had one in mythology. But why is he carrying that? You know, why does he have a tail like that? Okay, so. Um, we have pictures that come to our mind that the most recent one is this Baphomet, I'm not sure if I'm saying right, so the, the, the Satanists now, they have this statue uh, that they like to put up, you know, this would be, you know, when they tore down the Ten Commandments, okay, they put this character up representing Satan. So we have these misconceptions about the devil, we call them devilish misconceptions, and so this is kind of, again, theology is important. So let's try to understand a little bit about Satan to understand how he influences our temptations, what he can and can't do as a part of God's decree plan. The first thing we see here is that Satan is, uh, the first misconception I could say would be that Satan is not a personal being, rather he's just force of evil, right? That's what, that's what most people who aren't biblical and they have some idea of Satan is, hey, he's, just a, he's just a force of evil. And they have this, uh, you know, this, this picture of God and Satan. You know, they're like battling it out. Like there's some chance that God may not win. There's this dualism; that he's equal to God. There's this misconception that Satan resides in hell. That's his house. You know, that's that's the house of Satan. It is hell? Friends, hell was created to punish Satan. You see that in Revelation. He's cast into hell. That is a misconception. He does not live in hell. It's a misconception that he does whatever he pleases. He does not do whatever he pleases. We see in Job, right, the the story of Job, that Satan has to go and ask God. He has to to get God's permission. Satan is not omnipresent. This is one we have to work on, right? Satan is not everywhere all the time in the fullness of being. Only God is omnipresent because Satan is a created being. So when we talk about, oh, you know, the, the, devil was really, the devil was really pressing on me, you know, I, I, was, I was under temptation, I felt this, this darkness, and Satan was working on me. Is it wrong to say that? I don't know where Satan is right now, but he's localized. He's, he's, in, a, he's in a body. He's, there's some place where he is, okay, but he's not omnipresent. Now, we do know that when Satan fell, he took a bunch of, Thousands of, thousands and thousands of, we call them non-elect angels with him, right? Satan's an angel, okay? And he took his demons with him, his lackeys, and the guys who do all his light work. And so when we say, you know, Satan was really, this was just oppressive, you know, I felt this demonic spirit, you know, then well, it could be, I mean, the demons, right? Demons could be there. Another misconception is that when Christ was dying on the cross, that Satan received this ransom, right? So Satan has held captive all those who are disobedient. Jesus died on the cross, and in his, in his death, paid the ransom for sin, and that ransom was given to the devil. And they thought, okay. No, the ransom was paid to God, the holy, righteous God of the universe. There was a punishment penalty that had to be paid and Christ paid that his ransom, his death was a ransom for that so what is the biblical truth, right? Satan is a created being, right? So God created Satan when? on the, Probably on the first day of creation Psalm 138 too the angels were there at the creation of God Satan is a created being the devil can only do what God allows him to do Satan is not omnipresent I've got that on that side there, he's not omnipresent, right? But I've already mentioned this Okay, there are demons. Ephesians 6.12 talks about the powers of this world and the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Right? There is this demonic force that Satan has at his disposal. Satan does not rule hell. Hell was created as punishment for him. Neither does Satan live in hell. Right, back up, I keep going forward. Neither does Satan live in hell. Right? He was in that court, and this, is, this was a hard one for me, you know, so if God can't tolerate evil, if he can't be in the presence of evil, how is it that Satan is in this heavenly court, you know, having this conversation? I, I, I don't have that figured out. If somebody has an answer for that, please let me know. Satan actively works to nullify the word of God in people's heart, right? The, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of people, They are blinded to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only when God says, let there be light, is light shown into the, go- into the hearts of those who need to hear the gospel. Satan's actively working, right, in, this, in the parable of the soils, right? What's that? That first seed, that first picture there is, is of that seed that, that hits the sidewalk and the birds snatch it away real quickly. And that's Satan. Satan. So that's the biblical truth of, of Satan. He is a part of, and I, I, I keep using this, but God, God is not the one actively tempting. Okay? He uses non constraining secondary causation. Secondary meaning he is God allows Satan to tempt, and Satan is tempting according to you know, what he wants to do. It's non constraining. Satan's busy. And so as we consider Jesus being led out into the wilderness, compelled into the wilderness, to be tempted, there's some points that I want us to ponder. Okay, just This is where I'm going to have to break it off. So, please come next week to get the rest of this message. But I think there's helpful points for us to understand as we look at this, this concept of temptation. Right, we've seen that That everyone is is tempted, it's common to all of us, okay, That, that God is working through that temptation, and that Satan is more than happy to be a part of that. That's what we've seen so far today. We all have temptations. If you have a pulse right now, you have temptations in your life. There are sins that you hate, that you never want to commit again. There are, there are parts of your life you know that when you have to interact with this person that this temptation is going to be there. Sadly, some of you may, may have a spouse or somebody that you live with that, that, that you, this, this person is the source of my temptation. And so we, we have to be focused on and, and deliberate about how we approach temptation. And so, one, Satan uses temptations for evil. God uses them for good, right? I already said this about God using it for good, right? Satan's, you know, when we enter into a trial, Satan's focus on you is, when I say Satan again, I'm talking about Satan, his demons, the, the, the dark spiritual forces. His goal is, hey, I want you to sin. I want you to fail. And I want you to keep failing until you prove that you never were a child of God. But God uses temptations. He uses them for good. A perfect passage for this is Genesis chapter 50, right? All that happened in the life of Joseph. He's talking to his brothers. You know, they're like, Joseph, our dad's dead now. Are you going to kill us? Are you going to throw us in a pit? Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me right? You intended bad for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done in the saving of many lives. So as we enter into a trial and we face temptation, we have to say, okay, God wants something good. This is, this is a paradigm shift in the way you think. You've got, to, you've got to revolutionize the way you're thinking about your trials and your temptations, right? You enter into temptation. You feel the pressure, enter into a trial, you feel the pressure of temptation. God, you've got something good for me. Why do you know that? Because you're a child of God, and God promises that this is going to be for your good. He promises that, and so that's the mindset that we have to have. Satan may be busy. The people that Satan is engaging, and friends, if, if, if you have people in your life, if they're not a child of God, whose child are they? They're the devil's child. They're captivated by Satan to do his will. They are sons and daughters of disobedience. So we have to rearrange the way we think when we enter to a trial and temptations are there. You know, it's kind of James, right? I just, every time I read that, I'm like, get it on joy when you experience trials of various kinds. Woo, God's doing something fantastic in your life. Secondly, while we want to be acutely aware of the devil's schemes, let's remember the front line is your flesh, right? There's too many kids, even Sam's too young for this. You you know who Flip Wilson is, right? Jason, you know who Flip Wilson is? Okay. Who knows who Flip Wilson is? Right, okay, yes. You know, when you use your your illustrations, you have to be a... Flip Wilson is this African-American comedian. He's hilarious, and he had this character that he played, and I can't think the name of the character Geraldine right and he would he would dress up like a woman before it was like all this stuff's going on right and, and so he would be you know talking you know the devil made me do it all right and, and so there is an element of Christianity that has a demon for every single sin right there's the 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 demon of of, of 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 gluttony, there's the, the, the demon of jealousy. There's the demon of this and that, right? And and so, so, really, all of life is about you have to you have to say the right prayers. You have to, okay, we have to recognize which demon it is. It's the deliverance ministry. And, and I'm, we'll see in a second. Yeah, there is darkness. There are spiritual powers that want to destroy you. We have to be aware of that. And we have to live that way. But friends, your problem is your flesh. You love yourself too much. Okay, you are in touch with your flesh too much. It's your sin nature, right? That's what makes a difference between Jesus and us, is we have a sin nature. So Ephesians says this, all right, Jay, you say it's, it's not the principalities of darkness, but it's our flesh, right? In Ephesians 6, Paul says, look, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. Well, does that contradict what I just said? It doesn't contradict it because Paul's talking about people there. He's talking about people who have a pulse, right? He says, listen, the real problem, it's not them, it's, what they're, it's, it's the one energizing them to do what they're doing, right? So, hey, you can knock Nero out, flesh and blood, but unless you can take care of Satan, another ruler is going to come up energized by Satan. You're going to have to deal with him too. So that verse does not contradict what I just said. Right? What does John say? We'll come back to this next week. For everything that's in the world, what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'm talking about the flesh. I'm talking about your sin nature. That unredeemed part of you that you hate. But sometimes you really like it. Alright? You guys there with me? Maybe I'm the only one. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but the world. The world is energized by Satan, the God of this world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So it's the lust of the flesh. Remember James said this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires, by their own fleshly desires, by their own sinful desires. You can't say that God is the one that's tempting you. No, it's what's on the inside of you that's the issue. The front line is your flesh. But in a nod to the Super Bowl, remember, Jesus gets us. Jesus gets us. He understands. Jesus Jesus was was tempted at all points. Does does that mean that, that Jesus... Jesus had the temptation to binge watch on Netflix instead of, like, getting sleep or studying his Bible? No, I mean, oh, then Jesus wasn't tempted the same way I was tempted. Next week, you got to come back next week. All right, three categories. What? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But Jesus gets us, friend. Don't diminish the humanity of Jesus Christ. He gets you. He understands we read this passage prior to worship, prior to singing. We didn't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Beautiful empathy. You know, Jesus didn't sit up on a throne and go, tough time down there. I know that must be bad. I know what you're going through. No, he, he came down into our existence, came down, became one of us. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace and our help, and help in our time of need. So Jesus gets us. Aren't you so glad? Amen. Aren't you glad that Jesus gets you? It's not lost on you. On him, I should say. So, when you're in struggle and Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus when you're tempted. We sing that song, I run to Christ. I run to Christ when plagued by sin. Run to Jesus when you're in temptation. Fourthly, and there's five, okay? Temptations are going to come, right? It's common to all of us. So keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The author and the finisher, some versions say. I like the word pioneer. What does pioneer mean? It means he went ahead of us. He went where we hadn't been before. He's been through what we're getting ready to experience, broadly speaking. He's been there. He knows the way. He knows how horrible temptation can be. He was, he was you say, well, Jesus' temptations weren't the same as that. Jesus never gave in. I mean, think about how quickly you may give in to Sometimes Jesus withstood the full onslaught of Satan and all that he could throw at him and never caved. He understands how bad temptation can be. So keep your eyes on Jesus, right? There's a race that's been marked out for you. There's this race that's marked out. Jesus has been there. He says, I've been there. I've done that. I know how hard it's going to be. I know how hard it is right now. Just keep your eyes on me. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in." in. Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Those people who have lived by faith, let us throw off everything that hinders us in the sin that so easily entangles. But well, we could preach a lot on that one, but here's the point. He says, let us run the race with perseverance, that race marked out for us by Jesus, the race that Jesus has already run, and do so fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He was tempted to the point of death on the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame as set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endures such opposition from sinners, so that you will not, what, grow weary and lose heart. It's so easy to take our eyes off Jesus in the midst of temptation. I've fought this temptation for years, and I keep falling into sin. Jay, you keep telling me to keep my eyes on Jesus. You keep telling me, tell me to be in the word, to keep praying, to stay in fellowship, to be a part of worship, it's not working for me. I need, a, I need a different Jesus. Well, you're putting Jesus under some time constraints then, aren't you? Now, Jesus has marked out the race, and Jesus has determined how we run the race. And we need to trust in him to get us through temptations. You think Jesus has left you in the midst of your failure and temptation? You think he just leaves you? like? again no what's the promise of scripture i'm not gonna leave you i'm with you i died for you, you think i'm just gonna give up now but don't grow weary and lose heart lastly when satan happily comes alongside to accuse you of past failures in your battle against sin remind yourself that you're not defined by your failure rather by Jesus' victory. So easy, right? You, you fail in temptation. And, and you've done it again and again. And you've done everything you're supposed to do, and you still fail. I mean, what's going on? I'm a failure. You feel like you are defined by your failure. And then you have those moments, like it happens to different people at different times. You know, this sin, it's, it's like, you think you've gotten past and all of a sudden Satan's like, you think you're, you think you're something? You are something? You remember that? You remember that? You're a no-good, dirty dog. You're a failure. You're not defined by your failure. As a child of God, you're defined by your Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Why else did he give his blood? 1 John, my dear children, I write, to you, write this to you so that you will not sin. But, but guess what? If you sin, if you fail, just remember this. Jesus is standing before the Father going, yeah, they failed the temptation, but they're, they're yours. They're your child. They've got my righteousness. They've come to me in faith. He's advocating for you. Remember, I died for that one, that one who failed to get in temptation. That was covered when I died on the cross for their sins. You are victorious in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite songs is an oldie, but a goodie. It's an old, old Wesleyan uh, method is him. Arise, my soul, arise. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety hands. My name is written in his hands. My name is written in his hands. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw an eye. With confidence, I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. It's a beautiful song testifying to the advocacy of Jesus Christ on your behalf, who screams, they are mine, they have my righteousness, they are not defined by their failure and temptation. Friends, you have to to believe that truth. No matter how you feel, no matter how desperate you feel in your failure, Cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't diminish the work of Christ. When you cling to your failure and temptation, what you're doing? You're saying, not quite good enough, Jesus. Not quite good enough. Jesus died for all your sins. Your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are not defined by your temptations and your failures. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and sing.